Hi everyone, I'm back again and uh, so is Tom Munch for episode two of our discussions about music in general, which is a bit of a huge topic. Hello Tom. Hi, how's everybody doing? Good to see you again. Yeah, how do you think we're doing? <laughs> We've just been discussing how everyone's doing. It's, uh, it's 2020, we are doing 2020. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so... We actually did a little bit of a pre-work for this episode and we decided to send each other a song to see what we thought about them and maybe explore on the podcast how our views of them differ. And I fear that the song I sent you, which was March of the Black Queen by Queen, was maybe a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> Is Would that the one... Is that is that your final your final song? Because you sent me two others, and I wasn't sure which one you wanted to discuss. I did send you another one. I I, I think maybe for the purposes of the discussion, I, I think to me, March of the Black Queen is probably my second favorite song of all time. Whilst understanding that it's for someone who hears it first time, I'd be interested to think to see what you thought. Well, I don't mind having that one. I mean, I, I you already I already sent you a brief what I thought of it. Uh, I listened to it to a lot more than three times, which is what we had first decided on, mainly because uh, as a musician, I sometimes don't process a song until I see the structure of it. If I can't figure it out in the first three listens, and I, I could not figure out the structure of the song in the first three listens. And what I mean by structure is the average song that has a verse and chorus, the verse is the A section, the chorus is the B section. Maybe there is a some sort of a bridge or something. So the average song, um, traditionally, not there's a lot of songs don't you know pertain or don't adhere to this. But you get an A section, a B section, a verse, chorus, maybe another A and another B, another A, and then maybe the C comes in, which is the bridge that's different than the verse and chorus, and then maybe one more chorus to close it out. And there are others. There are songs that don't adhere to that. And I I'm a fan of both types. Um, and what we talked about in the first podcast was how there's a certain expectation and fulfillment in songs. And this March of the Black Queen does not go A, B, A, B. In fact, it goes A, B, C, D, E, F, G. <laughs> it, it changes all the way through the song. And um, on my first listen, my first comment was uh, the lyrics don't, they're nonsense, which a lot of Queen songs are that way. And they're on there intentionally, which we mentioned in the first podcast, uh, first time I couldn't sense any structure. The recording was very intense. All the tones jumped right out at me, and the guitar and vocals had a similar bite, which, uh, you know, everything was, was uh, in, in music, when we record something, we saturate it all the way as loudly as we can get it. Sometimes you purposely distort it. It can be distorted anywhere in the, in the process. Uh, it can be distorted, uh, you know, as a guitar, you can distort it in the amp, you can distort the mic, you can instort, distort the inputs. All these different types of things give it more bite. And so there was definitely bite, but not necessarily distortion. You know, a person can sing real smooth, or they can sing with a uh, kind of bite in their voice too. And Freddie would go in between that. He'd never really bite. He doesn't sound have the metal kind of uh, 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 kind of sound in his voice. Um, and his voice was just amazing. I mean, it, and and so so much depth and richness in his voice, no matter what he was doing. And so 
The song kind of felt like a freeform jam to me almost, where it was purposely, although it was very planned, and I read I read some history on the song, and it said that the band was interested in, had already done these kind of songs with Freddie before, but, but even so, they had to rehearse this song many, 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 many times in order to record it, because it wasn't necessarily recorded in sections. It was the, the backing tracks at least were recording all the first sitting, it sounded like, all at once. So it had, and the interesting thing is it has all of the signature Queen sounds and elements that you came to know later on in Bohemian Rhapsody and other songs where you have the certain piano things, the certain real intense vocal harmonies that are just jumping, and then the wild guitar leads, and... Uh, and and then the second listen, I finally put on headphones and really concentrated on it, still trying to figure out the section. I was getting lost in the song, again, where what the structure was, which wasn't important. And that's when I decided to map map this thing out, you know, and look at the lyrics and try to, you know, actually structure it in my head, which, again, it's not necessary. I have some songs I love that do this all the way through it, and they don't give you anything to hang on to, and that's that's okay. Um and then finally, after the third one, and after reading more about it and listening more intensely, I I like the song, and I don't know if it was what you were saying initially, the repetitiveness of a song, once you've heard it enough times, you like it. Um, it's still, it's it's very intense. I do know that myself, I prefer acoustic sounds, usually because there's more richness to an acoustic sound. And, and I shouldn't even say that because electric guitars have the same thing. I should say more synthetic sounds. Synths don't hold my interest because the sound is not as complex and developed. It just, you can't create all of the interesting things that come from wood and strings, uh, you know, a piano, anything that actually has more variables to create the sound is going to have more depth than a synthesized sound. But synthesizers have their place, and they definitely, in the 70s when this song was recorded, were coming into their own and were amazing, and they were really creating some interesting things with them. So I don't know if I've gone too far on after the three listens, but if it was a song I was coming across on the radio or on a playlist, would I listen to it a second time? Um... I'm not sure. You know, when a song doesn't give you enough to hang on to as far as a certain repetitiveness of a chorus or a verse or a certain lyric hook that grabs you, the second time doesn't, you know, you don't get that urge, I want to hear this again. It did intrigue me, and if this would have been the first time I had heard Queen, or if this, you know, I knew Queen's music and this is the first time I heard this song, it was... It was a stretch for Queen. Freddie was getting things that were a little farther out, and so you get a little more development, and it might have been like people who listened to the White Album from the Beatles or Sgt. Pepper's, that same kind of thing where, oh, wow, listen to what they've done now. Isn't this amazing? Listen to the textures they've picked up, and the vocals are even more intense, and it just goes all over. So it, it's thrilling, but at the same time, it's... Yeah, I don't know. If it was something I came across, I might give it a second listen. I might give it a third listen. I don't know if I'd give it a fourth listen. Uh, it's amazing, but it's, um, you know, my, when I was listening to it and was writing you at first, I played it for my wife, Jen, and she just kind of said, wow, that's just everywhere at once, isn't it? And I said, yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> Do you like it? She said, 
it's a little too intense for me. And I said, no, I could see that. It's something you might like different times of your life better than other times when you were looking for that intensity. It's, it's like a roller coaster ride, Queen is in this song. You know, it's, you don't know what's going to happen next and it's jumping at you from all sides. But the tones of the guitar are satisfying. The vocals are satisfying. Um, so I can't say. And, and this is our idea. We're trying to say, when we listen to new music, what grabs us? What makes us repeat it? What does it make us feel? Um, a little bit of everything. Uh, it's the intensity of it. Now that I'm almost 60, I tend to like things that aren't quite so intense, but it depends on my mood. There's some days when I may hear something like this and just go, wow, that is just, it's just amazing and it's thrilling to listen to. So what's your yeah, reaction? I think, I think maybe, um, I'm, yeah, you certainly covered your thoughts there. I think we're on nine minutes already. That's quite impressive. <laughs> the, um, I think maybe it's almost a sense of, I was interested when you said you may give it a second listen, because I'm pretty sure the first couple of times I heard the Queen 2 album, which it's from, I barely noticed it. And mm. over time, it seeped into my mind. And from what you say, I think you're probably right. It's a bit show-offy, maybe. It's almost, um, maybe it's, it's an example of a band that at the time was quite immature. I think they'd only been together for less than two years. And they're obviously, even from a very early start, pretty talented. But I think what's happened is possibly we can do this, so let's show everyone what we can do. And there's probably 12 songs they've done that are more complicated than that. So they have a... They had an early history of really going over the top. Mm -hmm. And I think I sent you another one. It was um, The Miracle by Queen. And that also has a major change where you have two parts of the song actually completely different playing over each other. And then they come together again. And it's first time I heard that I was hooked on that. So maybe it's an example of my lack of musical knowledge that finds something like that so impressive. Mm. Just because it's wildly complex, it goes all over the place. And then it naturally seems to come back together at the end. And with your musical knowledge, it probably you probably are looking at that or listening to that and thinking, is it all a bit unnecessary? Uh, I don't know about unnecessary. I I Yeah, I what you're saying about maybe they were a little immature and so they did this to be showy. Yes and no. I mean, it just depends on where where they were in their heads when they were creating it. You know, you don't know what Freddie was going through at the time. You know, that's that's the interesting thing about a lot of songs is you don't know the backstory of of you know where they having trouble in their personal life. You know, where they financially having trouble, where they um, on drugs at the time, and and really having some psychedelic experience that they were trying to capture in the music. You just you just don't know where it came from, and you also honestly don't know what else was being released at the same time and if they were influenced by other people. Or, um, That's so 1974, so I suppose in the UK at that time, you had an awful lot of prog rock music and right. at times overly complex music, and it felt, looking back, it feels maybe they just tried to go one step further than anyone else. Well, and that's it opened okay. my eyes a little bit when when you first said, I think you said I'm struggling with that Queen song, and 
it kind of opened my eyes a bit to think if you know it, if you've played it probably hundreds of times, which I have, it's a fantastic song. If it's new to you or if you've only played it a couple of times, it's a bit ridiculous and over the top. <laughs> so that sort of opened my eyes a bit. Where is your song? Um, it was my favourite picture of you by Guy Clark. Mm -hmm. It literally could not be more different. In every single way from I sent you this ridiculously long over bombastic <laughs> rock opera thing and you sent me what someone like me who is who just loves music and he doesn't know why I think I listened to that and by the third play it was like okay I love the melody I love the production I, I couldn't initially I thought oh I like the voice because it's slightly different and it's not perfect and I've often liked people who can't sing well but still have something like and that's your Leonard Cohen Lee Hazelwood is another right. one he's not a particularly great singer but it can really work and there's many other bands that, that, that where that does seem to work and I did think it was a really good song and it was one of those, I always think the test for me is, would I stick it in a certain playlist that I would play for work? And I actually did, because I, I did really like it. However, um, maybe that's part of the problem when we talked before about always looking for new music. Am I always looking for something that makes me go wow, rather than something that is just good music? Is this a song that actually means something to you for a personal reason? Oh, not necessarily. I think it's I think it's very well written. I think it's interesting. I think the lyrics have a certain depth. He was known as, as being a lyric songwriter, and the song talks about his wife through many, you know, struggles one way or the other if the audience doesn't know the song. And uh, he's it's after she's passed. I can't remember if you wrote it after she passed or not. But the point is, he's looking at this old Polaroid photo of when they were young, and um, and she was not. She was really mad at him that day and was getting ready to move out because she was so mad at him. And somebody clicked the picture, and he loves it because it shows how spunky and how independent she was. And he loved her even more for that. He was had a reputation for being kind of a drunk and kind of a mess of a person, but a brilliant songwriter and somebody who worked at it all of his life and was known as, as a brilliant songwriter. And so did the song mean something personally to me? It's, it's just a good song. He was somebody who really worked over his songs, and so sometimes I feel like they were worked over a little bit too much. But that song, it, it had a certain authenticity to it. I thought it was interesting enough. I was going to say enough. it felt balanced. It felt very balanced to me in that I really enjoyed the way he told the story because it was almost like, sounds a bit strange, it was almost as clear as an audio book. Um, and so that came across straight away was the way he was almost half singing, half speaking the story. And then the melody was there, which was not overpowering either. And it felt like it was an extremely well-balanced song. Mm -hmm. completely different to the Queen one. And I think by the third time I was thinking, I could see that, or I could guess, 
You can tell me if I was wrong. It's, an, it's a very competent piece of music. You mean from the aspect of of the writer or the structure of the song or or the way it all fits together ah, it felt yes. like it felt like the melody and the production and the words along with his voice all work together as one thing but i suspect yes. many people would hear it and say yeah that's a nice song but maybe not think <laughs> too much more of it and i don't mean that in a bad way oh no but maybe what's interesting about both these songs is they're as different as they could be, but they could both be very easily ignored and you may not explore that artist anymore if you'd never heard them before. I don't know about that. I think there's, I think there's a depth in both of these songs that would hold your interest. I think, as you say often, you can tell there's something there. So uh, as opposed to something maybe that was a kind of a throw off, you know, pop song that you knew wasn't going to last, wouldn't hold your interest as long. I think this, I think these songs, there is some depth there and you can sense there's some, there's some qualitative, you know, I, so I, I don't know if you, if you would ignore these. I think they would both grab your attention, whether you'd go back and listen to them over and over would depend on whether you liked them. But I feel like there's more, there's more complexity and depth to these songs than the average song. You don't feel that? Uh, well, well, there's obviously more complexity to the Queen song because it's, as we said, so silly. But the, um, again, though, what we both just said, I, I felt that I'm not sure either would necessarily get a second listen from someone else. Hmm. And that, people would maybe explore um, either artist further. If someone heard Bohemian Rhapsody, they're probably going to think, what else has this band made? March of the Black Queen? No. Hmm. My favourite picture of you? Yes, I'd have heard it. I thought, okay, that's quite nice. But I'll tell you what it wouldn't have given me was the sense that I wonder if he has made many, many more good tracks. Hmm. And is that part of the... I found it interesting that I felt that neither would get a second listen because they both felt a bit too way out in their respective ways for people to maybe be that interested. Whereas you felt they were both quite complex and there was a lot to it. And I, it's hard to explain what I'm thinking, but I suspect maybe we're all a bit too picky now in that there's so much out there we can grab on the day for what we perceive to be free that unless something really hits home it's likely to be ignored does that make sense i think if a lot of people <clears throat> heard these songs new on apple music they might bypass them well now we're actually getting to the heart of what what makes people listen to new music or what what makes them like what they hear to me it's the richness in the music it's the richness of the of the overall tone or of individual instruments or voices or the the lyrics that they're using clever and interesting or or the or the rhythm i mean it, it's we went over it a little on the first time i 
I think both these songs have something that's that's interesting beyond what the average song is. So so to me, I would hear these the Queen song, I would say, boy, that was a lot of work to listen to that. But I would say, especially if it was the first time I had heard them, I'd say, listen to those vocals. Those are amazing. Listen to that blend. Listen to that electric guitar tone. I have no idea where the song's going, and I don't understand the lyrics, but I'm drawn to those elements, and, and that would make me want to hear more. If I had already heard Queen, then yeah, maybe I would have said, well, that song's a little too far out there for me. The Guy Clark, the richness in the voice, the fact that there's a melody there that I that I can I can kind of hang my head on, and then that idea of somebody describing something that is so personal and yet so real. Both those songs, though, those are the elements that would make me want to hear the song again, or would make me want to hear more of that of that artist. Um, now. I don't know how you are with an artist, but if I do hear one song I like, then I will go to another song of theirs. And if I don't like it as much, then I'll give them a third song. And if I don't like the third song, I might give them a fourth. And then if that fourth one's not to my liking, I might even not listen to the first one again because I don't sense the depth in the person, their writing or their music that they're going to hold me. If I hear that first song enough times, then I may say, oh, well, I'm going to stick with that one because they'd hit a really good song at that point, but I won't go back to listen to other albums or the rest of that same album. And I'm an older guy that is an album person, you know. Even though I like individual songs, I tend to want to hear more material by that person. I, I want to hear where else they've gone. I think, yeah, I mean, I think I said it in the previous episode, although if I can hear two or three songs on an album, just a new album I picked up randomly, then I could be likely to dive a bit deeper. I did that with St. Vincent. I think I heard one song called Crawl and I own everything she's made now. And it's almost like it, that's the that's the nice part of music is that discovery. Mm-hmm. It is that thing of, oh, wow, I, I really like this individual or band. And then you potentially find three or four albums and you're never going to find every song you like. You know, that, that just doesn't happen. Um Although I suppose maybe the reason I like Queen more than most others is it's probably only about five or six songs I don't like of theirs. And even Mm. then, those five or six are probably equivalent to most other bands at the time. But for for me, it's very often one song and they're out as the majority of the time. I do that so much. I'll be working. um, I'll hit a new album. And I'll think, I'll oh, listen to this first, get halfway through the first song, right, next one. It's terrible. And it is terrible. And it's it's not having, and that worries me. And that, that sort of ties into the question I think you put up there of how does the, the view of new music affect how musicians create new music? And I'm wondering if a lot of them are creating music that ties into our shortened attention span that that we seem to have these days. Well, it depends on what genre you're talking about. Um, People in the genre that I like that are more uh, what we would call uh, contemporary folk type music, which would be more acoustic and more singer-songwriter-ish, that's the music I'm interested in, they don't tend to to care as far as I can tell. there are certain formulas you can follow that 
I've heard some writers stick to even in that, this genre. But in pop music, you know, there there are a few podcasts or radio shows that talk about new music, that talk about the trends, and uh, occasionally I will I will you know listen to them to see what they're saying and and the common thought now about some of these is that they they state the they in the very beginning of it they and this was a podcast I listened to last spring so it's probably changed again since then but the the idea uh, the person stressed at that point was the common pop song would stress the chorus would state it somehow in the melody or something of the instruments as the song started and then it would get through the verse as quickly as it could to that chorus and repeat that chorus as often as they could so that they'd get that hook and that chorus into your head. And and that's, you know, traditionally that's what the idea was uh, back in the 60s and 70s too, was the chorus is all it's worth. And I used to get some of the ASCAP and BMI mailings and stuff and look at them. Those are the songwriters unions um, that also administer songs and pay out royalties and things. And they would stress you need to, the verse needs to seamlessly link the chorus and the chorus has got to have that certain hook, that certain line, you know, like your Bermuda Triangle from my angle kind of a thing and repeat that often enough, but not so often it beats them over the head have a catchy enough melody that it grabs and, and keeps their attention. And I don't listen to that kind of music that much. I mean, some you know, I, everybody gets exposed to what's popular too and, uh, and sometimes likes it and it's fun, and it, whether it's got the infectious beat or the, or the hook that grabs you. But it doesn't affect how I create music, although you know, I have been told with songs that I've recorded that were too long, just like that used to be, you do your three minute song and you're out or three minutes, 30 seconds. I've had where, you know, somebody was looking for a song to fit a certain radio show they were putting together that was like, I've got a song called The Road and it's all about on the road. Well, my song's six and a half minutes long. And the person said, I can't give one person six and a half minutes. You know, I'm sorry. It's a great song, but I, I can't do it. And you think, I'm not going to write any differently because of that. You know, I, I sometimes think about it when I'm creating a song. I sometimes try to get it not too far out, but honestly, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with where I want to go. I'm not, I'm not going to worry about it. Uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just not, you know, I'm going to go where I was emotionally at the time and, and creatively at the time. If I came up with a guitar lick that I liked and that's, that's what I used to state it. State the beginning, like I did with Pincushion of Stars, which we talked about on the last episode. Um, then I'll base the whole song on that little guitar riff that I created. If it was a, something where I started with a lyric, like I wrote a song about September 11th, and I created it around a, a lyric that was, oh, the thing did not fit any common type of a, of a, uh, of a meter structure. And it was... I was pulled out my hair for two or three days trying to get that darn song to work. And when it clicked, it all fell into place. And then it was, oh, wow, this is what we meant to be. But anyway, to answer your song with a long rambling answer like I do over and over, <laughs> um, it doesn't influence me. me. <laughs> well, it definitely, yes. Um, it definitely influences popular writers. And uh, from what I understand... Well, that's it. I suppose. I, I suppose thinking back, I I think back to like the early nineties. We all had, or at least I did. Everyone I knew, we all had long hair, you know. And 
we were all into heavy metal and previous to that I was into house music and acid music and I really loved it and still to this day I can appreciate some of that early music and, and I think maybe that's what's dawned on me is you have these trends but if the music makes you feel a certain way then that to a point is all that matters so to this day there's some really extreme dance music I will play now and again if I want a bit of a pick-me-up um, and I still love heavy music to a point sometimes the heavier the better but I guess there's always been trends no, no matter what it was whether we had Britpop you know, in the 70s and the 80s, the uh, futurist music, Human League and people like that. So I guess a lot of the bands will, to a point, join that trend. And there's not many bands that modernise and go with each trend. And if they try to, it can go quite wrong. And I don't mean to mention them again, but Queen did that. They they made a dance album with Hot Space. And to this day, any Queen fan will tell you it's it's the worst record probably ever released. But um, as a general rule, I'm, I'm kind of curious as to all these new bands and singers that come along and jump into a certain style of music that's big at the moment. Does that mean they never had their own style? I don't think necessarily. Um, you know, I, 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 to be honest with the audience, you know, I am almost 60 and I'm not really in touch with new music near as well as you are, Sean. But my sense is they play it because it's what they're listening to and it's, it's what they like, you know, and so then they, then they play it. That's, that's what draws them. That's the kind of music they like. So they get their first instrument and that's what they play. It doesn't mean that everybody, you know, trends towards that or that they change their mind. Although, you know, I've been part of bands, uh, especially when I was in my 20s and early 30s, that we did say, you know, what are they paying for in the clubs? You know, what, what do they want to hear in the clubs? Well, they want to hear this kind of dance music. Okay, well, let's learn some more of those kind of songs. Or, gee, this is a great song. Can we learn it? No, you can't dance to it. We can't do it. Or they're not going to like it in this certain place. So, but that's people who are playing out for clubs. That's not people who are recording and trying to write, um, you know, to sell. Um, it's really hard to tell. And, and, you know, we have so many genres now and so many places to listen to music that you really do have people creating whatever they feel now as well because there are so many different niches where people can, you know, create their music and have it be heard. There's so many, you know... It, we had talked about this before. My wife and I talked about it, too. When I was growing up, you had the AM radio. We didn't even have an FM radio station in our town. And on that one station, you would hear everything. you know. And it was quite interesting that you could hear... You didn't hear country music. Country music had its own thing. But amongst what was popular, you might hear anything from folk to... You know, to not real hard rock, but fairly hard rock, to popular music, to, you know novelty songs all on the same radio station and everybody was listening to the same radio station and uh, because you know very few people had at the time in your car you might have you had to have an eight track or you had to have this little player that went on your dash that actually played a vinyl record and uh, so until cassette tapes came along you listened to the radio you didn't play your own music in the car and everybody heard the same stuff so 
uh, and it was yeah. very diverse uh, as compared to today. Uh, you know, all the different specific places you can get your music. So my 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 instinct is those who are writing popular music grew up in that. That's what they hear. That's why they you really hear it in vocals. You where you, all the vocalists are copying each other, where you get the same. You know, for a while it was the guys with the kind of the kind of wimpy out of tune voice or the girls that sang all in the little lilt lilty kind of thing you know with all of the really affected kind of vocal gymnastics you know like was popular in pop music or oh, was pop- yeah exactly or in country yeah. music they called it rebasizing because everybody did what reba mcintyre did who you you probably don't know her music at all um and so there is a lot of copying in i hear it more in voices than i do in instruments but also in the structure of the songs and you know the certain kind of beats that they choose and whether it's for dance music or whatever so i think in some genres there's a lot of copycat stuff going on i don't know if people get into it with the idea that we've got to get into this because it's what's popular and it's what's selling and there have been enough really distinctive artists throughout time and you think of somebody like prince or you think of somebody um i gosh it's there's always going to be a very successful person that's doing their own thing, that's doing it in a unique way that becomes popular and sticks with what they do and don't try to change because they love what they do. Um, you can think of any genres. I mean, during what you're mentioning in the 80s, there was a lot of copycat kind of stuff going on in that kind of poppy stuff that was a little dancey. Um, you heard a lot of the same kind of vocals and the same kind of production. But uh, so... Answer again with a rambling answer. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of copycat kind of stuff going on and people getting into it because that's what they think is popular and that's what they're going to create. Um, just a little side note, this is really funny. There was a time when iTunes first became pop- popular and people would search for a tune and would, you know, whatever came up first is what they would listen to if they were searching for a certain song they knew was popular. I had a, a duo partner and he had a really good voice and we said you know we could we could do this where we would create our own cover of every new song that we liked that came out and put it up on iTunes and as people search they might find our copy instead of the original copy and they might really like it and like our co- like our cover version and we could have a good career just making cover songs that people liked better or found first instead of the you know the original version of it we didn't do it but we considered it so maybe so maybe some people do that you know they purposely get into that style and stick to it because it's what's popular and they run with it and they make lots of money at it. I don't know. Yeah, or maybe it's just um, fashion in a way. As you you mentioned the 80s, an awful lot of music from the 80s was terribly produced. As you said, it's very synthetic. Um, it felt very flat, very high voices. Prince, as an example, glad we mentioned him because... I mean, the guy, you know, the the word genius is overused, isn't it? But uh, as a performer, as a guitar player, I mean, he could play, was it 20-odd instruments by the age of 13 or something ridiculous? And the man was, again, another person I probably, before streaming, owned everything he made. And he he, he had some weird stuff, very weird. But And I thought it was interesting as well, you mentioned novelty tunes as well. I presume you meant jazz, but... Anyway, um, <laughs> no, this was this this is the early seventies. 
you know, <laughs> things like the night Chicago died or, you know, just kind of fluffy, Silly goofy songs. things or, well, yeah, you know, uh, the streak and stuff like that that just, you know, but everybody heard it and was, oh, it's the latest goofy thing anyway. And there's always been the silly 70s. songs, hasn't there? Oh, okay, yeah. so going back to the 70s, I'm trying to work on my segues here. Vinyl. <laughs> One of the questions was, why so hard to recreate the emotions of vinyl? And I was thinking about this the other day. I've seen a few apps that go down the novelty route of saying, you know, play this song and it will sound like vinyl. And it doesn't, because all they do is put a few crackles over the top of it. And it was never the crackles to me that made vinyl sound the way it did. It was the actual um, hardware we played it on. I remember sitting down hearing A Night of the Opera for the first time. My father's speakers were probably about four or five foot high in the lounge. And he had this massive sound system. He was obsessed with music. He had thousands and thousands of albums and eventually CDs. And there was something about the vinyl. It wasn't technically better. But I don't, I'm not so sure it was the vinyl itself as the speakers, the amp, and the analogue nature of what it was, where it somehow felt old and natural, yet of good quality. Whereas maybe when we jumped then to CDs, whilst I'm sure all of us, all of us when we heard our first CD, we, we, we were like, wow. I don't know if you felt that. I was genuinely shocked at how good I, I felt it sounded. But there's something about that sound of vinyl, and I, I, I'm convinced it's not the vinyl itself. It's the actual music systems and speakers and amps we used at the time. Well, I'll give you a little education in, in recording technology. Um, everything, well, not everything, because the early days of vinyl, you went straight to... And it wasn't vinyl, it was acetate. But the early days, uh, the 60s and 70s and on into the 80s before digital music really took over, everything was created on analog tape. And analog tape had a certain compression to it that was um, your signal-to-noise ratio was not very high. And you had to have all of these interesting compressions and things that you did to try to lower the noise that's when Dolby first came out the Dolby not Dolby sound systems this is in the days when they would get rid of the hiss by doing a certain compression to the music where you would compress it and then you would decompress it and by compressing it you'd try to move the music out of the range of the hiss that was inherent on the tape and so the idea was get rid of the hiss and most cassette players of the time and most, well, going back to reel-to-reels and what was used in the studios, they would have some sort of, oh, and there was another, which I've now forgotten, compression that was used on everything. Oh, shoot. Gosh, we used to use it all the time in the studio. Darn it. I can't remember it. Anyway, it was another thing that was similar to Dolby, and Dolby had Dolby B and Dolby C. But anyway, the point being, you recorded to analog tape first, and on analog tape had this signal-to-noise ratio that was fairly low, and you could get pretty good pristine recordings, but you had to saturate everything up as, as loudly as you could to get that hiss level down where it was out of range, and then you finally would press it to vinyl. And when you pressed it to vinyl, 
there were very strict limitations with that too. You couldn't bounce between left and right very much because that might throw the needle out of the groove. You had to watch your, your and there were just all of these limitations of it, uh, of both the, the tape and the vinyl as you were dealing with it, and, and lots of ways to work around it in the studio, and lots of ways to work around in the production, and it led to all of these, you know, really fancy uh, tape replay systems, whether they were reel-to-reel or cassettes or eight tracks, and it led to people having extremely elaborate turntables with really high-dollar, you know, uh, styluses on them that had all kinds of absorption, and I had friends who had, like, marble bases to set their turntable on and these shock systems so you could crank up the speakers without getting any sort of feedback through the turntable that vibrated the needle that messed up the you know the the sound and it, it was just so elaborate and uh it was such a pain honestly and and it and the biggest thing is as a musician you had to have a record deal or have a lot of money or you could not afford the studio and you couldn't get your records produced and when it went to digital, suddenly we had this huge signal-to-noise ratio, and you could record anything you wanted. And eventually, anybody could record anything they wanted, which lets anybody release albums instead of having to go through studios and go through. So when you talk to me, you're talking to somebody who dealt with all of that tape and vinyl, and there was a, there was a really smooth, beautiful compression to the tape. The vinyl was always, it was always a limitation. And most people I knew who had, who would buy a vinyl record would buy it and record the first time directly to reel-to-reel tape or cassette tape when it came out and then put the vinyl away and never listen to the vinyl again. Because vinyl, once once you listen to it half a dozen or a dozen times, and, and we didn't do this in our house because we couldn't afford and we didn't have tape. And... So we got used to the pops and the wow and the flutter and the other things that came in on it. But when CDs came out or when cassettes came out, oh, wow, now we can listen without the limitations of the vinyl. So to us, vinyl was not a pure experience. It was beautiful to listen to and it was fun to. But once you wrecked that record, you had to go buy another one because it had a major scratch in it or a pop at a certain point and it drove you crazy. So to those of us who did play on vinyl, um, and not everybody, because obviously your dad didn't do this. He didn't get into reel-to-reel tape or whatever. But for all of my friends, it was record that thing once onto a cassette. With, that's a metal cassette with the highest, you know, the Dolby C if you got it, and make it so it sounds great on a tape, and don't ever listen to the vinyl again. Stick it away in a nice protective sleeve in the cabinet. <laughs> and so it, the vinyl, to me, amazed me when it started to come back, because... CDs were such an amazing improvement. They were more portable. They had this great signal-to-noise ratio. You could still record the first uh, thing on tape, so you'd get that nice warm tape compression, but then you'd get the pristine audio quality of the CD. And so it was, why would we ever go back to vinyl? And when we did, friends and I just looked at each other like, what are they doing? Gosh, we got past that imperfect thing, and now we're to this wonderful, you know. And, and yes, digital's got some limitations to it too. And when it when it distorts, digital distortion is horrible to listen to. But to my opinion, would I go back and never listen to vinyl? Might for the to me, the vinyl experience was sitting down with that nice big jacket with lyrics and a fold out, and sitting on the couch and listening either on headphones or on a good speaker system where you really listened and you read all the lyrics and you got into that. So, 
to me, that's the vinyl experience that I miss. But as far as the actual vinyl itself, gosh, I had a dishwasher brush that I cleaned the thing with every time, and I was so careful with it. And it was just this, boy, this is a, it, it was, it was fun because there was this analog and this ritual to it. But, oh, gosh, CDs were so much nicer. It was just, wow, listen to this. It sounds so good. I mean, the first CD player I had was a portable one that I put in my car. And people would want to go ride with me just because they wanted to hear how pristine and beautiful that sound was on a CD. So, I, I'm quite stunned at, at what you said there. Um, because from where I sat, I guess... I've always felt that I, I do get what you said last about that tradition of putting the record down, maybe cleaning them and the little dump when you drop the stylus just right. That, 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 that lovely noise. But I always considered vinyl to sound better than tape. Hmm. Everyone I knew felt that tape sounded terrible. Even with Dolby, if, if you put you'd have the hiss with tape. As soon as you hit the Dolby switch, which a lot of um, systems had at the time, it seemed to dull and everything. I never liked tape ever, and I never considered cassette to be a good sound quality. Whereas I always, for some reason, I'm sh I have no doubt that technically I'm completely wrong, but for some reason, vinyl felt like, in my head, as a non-musician, a non-audio person, it felt like the original. My father was the same. And I remember when I was, it was probably about 11, so it was 1981. Uh, as I said, my dad was obsessed about music, to say the least. He literally had all of Elvis Presley's initial original EPs, all of the early Beatles records, and they were all perfect. And... In 1981, I remember I went with him to the local music shop and he'd saved up and he said, oh, we're going to go and pick it up. And so we went down there and we, we must have done about, it wasn't a long walk, but we probably did about 10 journeys to bring up the whole system back. It was all separate parts. It cost him £2,000 in 1981. That was a lot of money. And he then added a, rec a vinyl record player to it where you would slide the record in and the stylus would find the tracks back in 1981. And the sound quality to me was incredible. But you put a tape in and we both sit there and go, <laughs> it was remarkable how never liked cassettes at all. The, the only huh. use I ever found for a cassette was in the car when I was a bit older. And I don't know. It's it's funny though, isn't it? How there's been a revival for vinyl, but not for cassettes. Well, it's funny because I still have cassettes left of the albums I created back in uh, '99 and 2000, and I have people uh, still buy them because <laughs> I have never wow. sold all of them. Sometimes they buy them as a souvenir because they're only five bucks. Sometimes they. Yeah, this they is still... America, though, isn't it? Yeah. Sometimes they this still America, have a vehicle yeah. that has a cassette player in it. Um, I'm surprised your dad never got into reel-to-reel -reel tape because all the audio files I knew, they listened on reel-to-reel -reel, and they didn't ever play the vinyl because they loved the the reel-to-reel -reel could be just as good. Plus, a lot of the reel-to-reel -reel guys would uh, would capture stuff off the radio 
that was high quality off FM and it would be live performances. And also some of them would travel and record stuff, you know, at a concert. I don't know how they did it, honestly, but uh, they loved having that, you know, like deadhead type stuff. But He did uh, record. He probably for a good 10 year period, every Sunday at 6 p.m., he would sit down and record the top 40 as it was announced, you know, to see what the new number one was. And he would write on the cassette inlay every single track, every group, every artist and the positions. And they're still there. This huge array of cassettes that he'd recorded. And it was just something he did. But he never played them because they were on cassette. Mm -hmm. It's a really odd thing. Um, but <laughs> he was he an archivist. Was, possibly. But he was a bit like me, I think, in that. He felt that the vinyl was the original. When I collected music, I would, as time went on, I would buy the CD, the cassette, and the vinyl of a new, for example, a Queen album while vinyl was still around. Then I wouldn't play the vinyl. Then I would just play the CD. Hmm. But I would buy all three. Um, and but but he was like me. He would mainly prior to CD and when cassette was there, he would always play vinyl. And it's interesting, back to the start, March of the Black Queen on the Queen 2 album, my copy is literally blank. You cannot play that anymore. Hmm. It's played so much, a lot of the grooves have gone. So it just slides and stops and slides and stops because hmm. I played it so much. And I like that. And that sounds strange, but we've reached the point where it doesn't matter. If you want to listen to the song, it's anywhere I want it to be. I quite like the fact that it's there, this this record with almost no grooves left. Oh, that's great. Good keepsake. But you didn't yeah. see, we were even, we were even into, well, I think part of it is because not everybody had a turntable. So one of our friends would buy the latest album and we knew that he had a really good sound system and we'd all buy the highest quality cassette tapes we could and he would record it for us. And then we'd play it on our own. So that way we didn't all buy it. That was part of it. But also, you know, we made a, a big deal out of recording our cassettes, you know, just so with the best quality tapes we could get. And so we thought the quality was very good until the tape started to go a little bit, you know, or we didn't have a good player. But uh, but Did you we do really thought times? our. Um, I'm thinking I, I still have all my old cassettes in the cabinet over here. Uh, not necessarily. Uh, well, yes, I, yes, we did actually. Yeah. If you knew somebody who had a really good sound system and a, uh, yeah, yeah, I do have some mixtapes. Usually it was a whole album cause I was kind of a purist. I wanted all of the cuts, but I do have some mixtapes, but n not the mixtapes that were popular late eighties and early nineties kind of thing. Although I, I can't say that at that point I was into digital cassettes uh, DAT and I've I've made mixtapes on DAT and I had a little portable one that I would carry around with me. So yeah, actually uh, I did make mixtapes. <laughs> yeah, know, I went CDs. through a phase of I went through a phase of making um yeah I I loved they might be giants originally. And I, you went through a phase of trying to put all their best tracks onto one cassette and then eventually onto mini disc. And I adored mini disc while mm. it was around. It wasn't around for long because they didn't release enough of the big albums on the format. It mainly became just a recording device. Right. But yeah, I was a bit obsessed for a while of making this perfect album of maybe three albums worth 
taking the best five tracks from each album. And I suppose that was fun, whereas making a playlist today doesn't really feel the same, does it? Because it's too easy. Yeah, and I'll give you two funny, funny examples. I remember in the mid-'80s, I was selling stereo uh, equipment at a stereo store when I first uh, moved to where I am now, uh, just as kind of a Christmas-time job. And I I probably did it for a few months after that, too, because I enjoyed being around the good stuff. And then next door was was the CD store. And I kept saying to the gals in there, wouldn't it be cool if we had something we could just plug in and download all the songs that we liked from the store and just pay for them there and then take it with you and you could listen to them instead of buying these CDs? It's all digital files anyway. We should be able to just listen to them. (laughs) Too bad I didn't go with that. Although my idea was not you download them over the internet because there was no internet. My idea was you go into the store and they, you know, copy them onto your little your little hard drive, or we didn't wow. even need the hard drive and then listen to it. And then the second thing was, the first time I did get into digital music, it drove me crazy that I had to create a playlist. To me, if the album was there, I should be able to just click on the album and it would play through the album. Not that I have to put it into a playlist. The whole idea of this playlist thing was, well, why, why can't I just play the music? Why do I have to put it into a playlist before I can play it? it drove me crazy. <laughs> it's still a bit like that today because it's, it's interesting how on the iPod, I literally had my library because it was all the music I moved to it. Now I'm on Apple Music, everything's a playlist. I, I can't, I don't look at the library as such. It's really odd, and may, maybe I should. And yeah, yeah I mean, there's, the other, there's the other tabs there in your in your... In your player, you just have to use them, and of course, they're not set up where you see all the tabs the same way anymore. Now you got to click and click on something yeah. else, so it's it. it and you can't really customize you it. You right. can't customize it that much, which is a real shame. Okay, I think we can probably do one more question. We're definitely going to have to do a part three if 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 either of our countries manage to make it to twenty twenty one. Yeah, through the holidays at least, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, if we're going to call them holidays. <laughs> I I was interested in your question, um, because I struggled a little bit with it, which, is the desire for new music tied to the desire to better ourselves? What did you mean by that? Because I was a little bit perplexed. We talked about it a little bit in the first episode, because I was talking about historically, during the Enlightenment, people listened to music because they wanted it to, to actually uh, help their brain because of the mathematics of it and the challenge of it. They thought that it was a, something that improved their, their thinking powers. Um, so my idea behind it was, do you listen to music that's uplifting, that... that um, challenges you lyrically or maybe uh gosh i mean there's so many different aspects of this could it be music that's more meditative could it be music that challenges you um you know to think about the music uh is it music that the lyrics uh challenge you in some way because they're clever in the way that their rhyme structure works or that the vocabulary of the lyrics are, are words that you maybe even have to go and look up or there's some sort something to the syncopation of the way the music works that it so the idea being 
it's like it's like reading, you know, they always say that you read because it makes you a better person, whether it's good fiction because it makes you more um, uh, empathic towards people uh, or sympathetic towards people, or it uh, is it the kind of reading that you do to learn something? Uh, of course, you're not going to listen to a song for history, although there definitely been songs written for that uh, in some in some genres. So that's not quite what I'm getting at. But, uh, you know, when I'm writing music, sometimes I'll say to myself, you know, what's the purpose of it? Is this song to entertain? Is this song to to stretch people somehow? I was working on a song this fall that I didn't finish, and the idea was... I have this obsession with the fact that music is all about timing. And when you, you, you know, this is a little heady, but you honestly cannot know anything other than this exact moment that you're in. You know, the, the past five minutes ago and the future five minutes from now is always going to sit outside your realm of this consciousness of this very second. And when you are playing music, you are playing with this very second either playing a little bit ahead of the beat or behind the beat, and this expectation of it is thrilling to me. And when you play with other musicians, some people play on top of the beat, some people purposely play behind it, so that you get this just a little bit of this almost laziness that makes the song have a certain a certain pull or push to you as you're listening. And so I tried to write this song where it purposely got a little ahead of the beat and then a little bit behind the beat. And the idea was to push. I have a friend who's an unbelievable guitarist who does a lot of what they call tapping on the strings to get the certain tones and plays acoustic. And she had a song that she wrote that she was unaware that she did this where she would speed up and slow down and speed up and slow down. And as you listen to it, it did something to you emotionally as it pulled and pushed you, and it was thrilling. And so I tried to write a song like that that was all about getting ahead and getting behind and playing with time in a way that the audience would, it would stretch you a little bit and you'd actually think about it a little bit or you'd feel this thing. And so that's, that's my idea. Does the music, do you really listen to it because it does something to you other than just entertain you? Yeah, and absolutely. I, and I, I guess you could argue more on a more basic level, simple things like exercise. Obviously, mm -hmm. if, if I go for a run or I'm doing a workout, for whatever reason, no matter what type of music you like, and it's going to be something fast, um, in that situation, it actually does enhance your ability to go a bit further. And Joe says exactly the same. Um, she can run, she does, what, 5K every day, and then she'll do a 10K in between. Um, although... She's playing Bon Jovi half the time, so I don't know how the hell that helps. But, you know, <clears throat> so for some reason, it, it seems to help her. But it, it it certainly does something. And I might actually, I suppose I could bring that into this other question, which I raised, which was, do you listen to the music and think about the music or does it spark your imagination um, of life, really, while listening to it? And I suppose it's sort of intertwined because I mentioned before about how I have to listen to music when I'm writing, how I had to listen to music when I was preparing for exams, because it does help me it physically and emotionally helps me. It always does. I can't drive anywhere without having music. Um, 
And I do find sometimes it almost sounds a bit strange and a bit childish. And I'm curious as if to know if I'm just weird. But often I can listen to music and I start imagining all sorts of things. It's almost like I, it can take me into a complete daydream. And I can think about, I don't know, it could even be like being at work and all sorts of strange things happening at work. Good things and almost always good things. Or at home. And I find my mind is almost opened up by the music. We talked before about how some people will use drugs to open up their mind to be able to improve their writing skills or their music. I feel it does that to me on a very minor level. So yeah, I would agree. I think the right music in the right situation is much more than just entertainment and it's always been more than entertainment for me. But I don't think I've ever listened to a song without my mind wandering to maybe a better place every single time. Does that happen to you? Depends on what the song is, but oh, sure. And that's that's part of the reason I play music. And part of the reason in the first episode I said that music is there's a magic to it. It interacts with our brains in a way that stimulates all kinds of things. Uh, and it's and it's because of that that tone and that texture and that melody and that push and pull of the rhythm and the way it syncopates. All those things stimulate us in in so many ways and in in so many you know, we don't really understand how much our hearing does. We, I, we focus, and I said this in the first episode, more on, on visual things and not as much on hearing. You know, it, I, I love the exercises where somebody says, close your eyes and listen to the room and speak and listen to all the things you can hear in the room at once and hear as you speak how it bounces off different walls and pay attention to that. And there's, there's such a, a depth of music and such a way that it, that it, it really does stimulate so many areas of your brain and it's the reason music is used with alzheimer's and dementia it it reaches different parts of our being and again to me it's even something that's magical but I've, and this goes back to the enlightenment they listened to music because they thought it actually developed their brain and developed their thinking and their understanding and i i think it does i absolutely think that listening to it does that and I I say that you know I don't listen to music much at all if I'm learning songs I do but otherwise I'm more of a podcast person um which is horrible to say although one of my favorite podcasts is called uh 20,000 hertz and the guy just talks about sound and and he doesn't talk about music so much but he's always talking about how sound is made and the different sounds and I think you listen to that podcast too um and I, I just love that people concentrate, and I wish it was more. Oh, it was music too. He just doesn't deal with music much, but I, I, I've, I've corresponded with him a little, and almost encouraged him to really get into analyzing music too, because it's just so fascinating. Um, and it's it, there's, gosh, as we've already done in two podcasts, you could talk about the elements of music till you till the day you die, and still never really understand it. And uh, there are so many good books that explore it. it there's just it, if it doesn't, if it doesn't stimulate you and make you a better person, or make you improve as a as a human being, I don't know how it doesn't, because it it just wraps you up in so many different ways. Yeah, yeah, it's it's okay. So maybe I'm not quite so 
weird <laughs> and i guess it's like anything isn't it it's like a book um a play a film we're all going to react in different ways and i guess particularly this year where um i found at times i think we've all felt there's been moments or long periods of time where you feel like you're just exi- existing you don't necessarily feel like you're living as such and no matter how much you like doing something obviously you you have a much more interesting dog walk than i do we see that from from your photos but <laughs> even doing the same thing every day i have found like i'll wake up and before i start work early in the morning i have to go for two mile walk because if i don't i'm completely i feel shattered strangely when you do some exercises as as you'll know you you feel more invigorated and able to get on with it but part of that is putting music on yes it's dark yes you're walking back you you could be mugged but i don't really i have to have the music on and it for some reason it does something and does genuinely help and i i think you're right and i i wonder how often people are making music that's just for entertainment and just perhaps those of us that don't particularly like the music that is just for entertainment are subconsciously drawn to music, which is much more than that. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a given. I think we we already kind of said that in a roundabout way that uh, you want music that has depth and richness to it because it it involves you more and and it, although. There is no song or no music that that there's nothing there at all. If there's any passion at all in the delivery of the music, you're going to feel that. And it's it's you know there's there's stuff that you would call rubbish, but if it's if it's being delivered with some sort of sincerity, I think there's always something there that that redeems it, even if it's completely out of tune. Uh, it's the it's the the sincerity and the you know and the intent that we pick up as much as anything in the music. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just a, it's just a very enriching way to communicate and a very enriching way to, to spend your time. And part of the reason I create music and play music is because I always tell people it's like a river. You jump into it. And once you're into it, it's just this wonderful thing swirling all around you that, engulfs you and and uh, carries you along and i think that it's uh you know you can look at a lot of different things that way but as a musician there's nothing like jumping into the stream and just going and running with it and feeling the push and pull and loving the harmonies and the melodies and it's just it's uh you know it's amazing and it's incredibly given the right song and the right time it's incredibly sticky as well in that the amount of times um, I've heard a song, a new song, and thought, that's incredible. And I literally have played it 12 times in a row until I really understand how incredible it is. And then maybe songs like Anthem, Leonard Cohen, how many times have I played that song in my life? But it never gets old. Whereas a film likely will, and, and a book or anything, no matter how good they are, Okay, and admittedly, they take a lot more time and a song can take three minutes to listen to. 
um, or six minutes if you're a bit over the top with your music, Tom. Um, <laughs> I think that song you mentioned, that's longer than Bohemian Rhapsody. That's quite impressive. Um, but But it's incredible how it never gets old, does it? A song you love, even though you might not always hear something new in it, we have this ability to literally listen to it over and over and over, every day, possibly, for the rest of our lives. It's incredible. Nothing yeah. else is like that. No, I remember once somebody said, you, you never said to Van Gogh, can you, can you paint A Starry Night again? <laughs> no, <laughs> people don't want to hear it over and over. They may enjoy the painting, but it's not the same thing. You know, it's, it, there's something about it, the process of, of hearing a song that uh, is very satisfying. Yeah, it's it, it's a fascinating topic. And so, um, did you uh, did you hate my uh, my changed version of anthem that I played last night? Or you've not heard it yet? I, I haven't got to um, what you did last night yet because it's been quite a quite a sad way to end the podcast. We've literally been um, at home watching the news to see if we're going to be able to get any Christmas food because of the ongoing problems. It's it's hard to explain how... Um, we talked a little bit about it before the podcast, but today felt like a real um, massive drop, even for 2020. If you said a normal day is 80% and 2020 every day has been about 20%, we hit about 3% today in the UK. It was quite remarkable how bad things have got in so many different ways. And so I haven't got to it yet. Now I realise it's on that. I, I, I didn't realise you were actually putting it on your show from last night. So that's the next thing I will do then, <laughs> is put that on here. Well, you can be brutally honest with me if you don't like it, and I'll blame I, my I wife. I will, if you've she... messed up Anthem. If, if you've messed it up, I, I, I don't care. You know, we've always got on very well, and you've always been extremely helpful to me. <laughs> um, but if you've messed up that song, I will never, ever forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> Blame it on my wife. She she thought it needed to have a new approach. She thought it plotted along and that it needed a little more drive. So see what you think. I changed. I I I didn't change it massively. Oh yes, I did. You just see what you think of it. Uh, and if people are curious, they can go nervous. to my website and hear my. It's from my show last night, and uh, I'm on Facebook, and then I embed my shows on my website. And uh, if you you want to hear what I did to it, you can you can tune into it. Uh, you'll make my day because I don't normally get more than a couple dozen people on my website on a given day. So uh, anyway, not that I'm trying to advertise for myself, but if you want to hear what I did to that song, you might spam me with the worst comments I've ever had in my life, <laughs> or you might uh, do just the opposite. It's TomMunch.com, isn't it? Yes, I may regret okay, this. I I'm going to go off and listen to it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm genuinely quite nervous. I don't think I've ever heard anyone cover that song, actually. I don't think it's I'd... a particularly popular song. Oh, gosh, no. I found you a know, bunch like of Hallelujah, covers on YouTube. Way. Well, you'd be surprised how many covers I heard of it. Sting did a particularly good one. Um, that, there Sting. were some wonderful ones on YouTube, yeah. He did it live at some time. I don't know if it was a tribute or whatever. Elvis Costello was hosted hosted it, and Sting did it, and it was, it was a it was a pretty faithful uh, rendition of it, and uh, sounded 
Sting sound an octave, he's saying an octave down, so he didn't get quite the, the kind of the low thing that Leonard gets, but he approached that. It was interesting. Yeah, I think it, mm. I don't, I don't think again, you'd hate it. Well, I, I, again, that goes back to opinions of music, because usually if I hear that Sting's done something, that almost guarantees that I won't listen to it. But <laughs> that again goes to our different opinions, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, I gotcha. So, well... Um, I think he did it honestly, so that, that's what I sensed as he was trying to pay tribute. So when I hear that, then I, I usually give purpose persons the benefit of the doubt if they're really trying. So I, I think you're right with the honesty, because I remember um, Leonard Cohen did Tower of Song with you too. And, you know, they're, they're slightly below Sting on my hate list. Um, but it was fantastic, and they genuinely did seem sincere. Even Bono seems sincere, and that's remarkable. Well, you know, he did just... a cover. He did a cover of Anthem too on Facebook. If you want to hear that, oh, you're ruining. <laughs> I thought today was bad enough, and I thought 2020 was bad enough. <laughs> well, then don't don't even look at any of, these, any of these covers for for a few days, then, and you won't have to think <laughs> about your song being ruined. <laughs> I presume you've heard that story about um, Bono. In his concert, when he stood up in the middle of a song and said, "Every time I clap my hands, another child dies in Africa." Yes. And someone shouted out from the audience, "Stop effing doing it!" Then, which I thought was quite funny. Oh gosh, yeah, that's... Uh, bless him. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so I think we've um we've almost hit the end of 2020, and I'm sure we'll probably have to come back for a third episode because we've still got questions and we've. It's. I think it would be nice to round it off with a third one in the full knowledge that we know we're never going to be able to answer music, the question of what is music and why do we like it, and that's probably why it's so good. The fact we can't answer it is what makes it what it is. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, let us know what, what you all are thinking about it. I don't know if you've got any feedback on the first episode or not. Um, but, I've uh, had quite a few, I get quite a lot of emails, um, I've had quite a few about the different podcasts and I, I will go through them, it's it mixed in with quite a lot of people who don't seem to necessarily agree with some of my political views um, mm -hmm. and a huge number of people that seem to take offence at my views on the fact that I believe Covid is real, so it's mm. quite remarkable I would say. 20 emails a day I get on that subject from people who are mm. telling me, sending me what they consider to be evidence, um, suggesting that it doesn't actually exist and that it's all a conspiracy. It's quite remarkable. Yeah, well, you'll get some more after this episode then too. Yeah, maybe that. Maybe we should write a song about, maybe you should write a song about COVID and double it all together. Well, thank you, Tom, for doing this. Thank you. And for, thanks, for... thanks once again for the music that goes with every single episode of these podcasts. And I hope you have an excellent Christmas. I hope you do too. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll try. And we'll, and we'll talk in the new year if we're both still if we're both still up and kicking and, and anxious to talk. <laughs> That's about the least optimistic I've ever heard anyone be. <laughs> if we're both still alive, we'll talk again. <laughs> Well, nice one. Well, thank you. 
Thank you for listening, everyone. And um, we will talk to you next time. Goodbye.